If you have your copies of God's Word, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 31, that's page 953 of the Pew Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, again, we'll be on page 953. The little 31, that's verse 31, that's where we'll be starting. We're going to be jumping right. I'll ask you to stay with me in reverence of Holy Scripture. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your law, I said, you are gods. If he called those to whom the word of God came gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said, I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing my Father's work, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Then they were trying again to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So he departed across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. Many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Who is Jesus? This, of course, is the question that the Gospels bid us to ask. Who is Jesus? Even what is Jesus? And the Gospels, of course, supply us with the answer. In fact, our Gospel writer, John, in his prologue, answers the question. He tells us that Jesus is God's eternal word. means all things. Jesus is, again, we see in the prologue, God's son. He eternally comes forth from the Father as the image of God. Jesus is, we see in the prologue, our light and our life. He's the means by which we come to see the unseen God and are saved from sin's darkness and death. Simply put, Jesus is the Son of God, become the Son of Man, so that we, again we see in the prologue, might be called children of God. And as we read the gospel, as we make our way through the gospel, we're about halfway through the gospel of John now, we see that truth unfold with every one of Jesus' signs and sermons. We find that Jesus proves himself to be exactly what and whom the gospel writer says he is. At this point in John 10, at the end of John 10, apart from the cross, we've reached the pinnacle of Jesus' self-disclosure. With every sermon, with every sign, Jesus has revealed himself to be Israel's God and Messiah. And with every work, with every witness, Jesus has clashed with Israel's leaders. Those who are in Eve are those who reject. And yet Jesus, again, this morning in the text, will bid them, the skeptic, he'll bid the onlooker, even us, the disciples, to ask the question, who is Jesus. And he encourages us to answer that question by considering Jesus is God's Son and our Savior. And we know this. We'll see three things in the text. We know this from Jesus' mission, 
from Jesus' miracles, and from Jesus' messengers. So who is Jesus? He is God's Son and our Savior. We know this. We'll see from His mission, His miracles, and His messengers. It's as we consider His mission and His miracles, as we hear His message from His messengers, that we come to know and realize that Jesus is who He says He is. He is God's Son and our Savior. We'll begin first with Jesus' mission. You can think about mission in kind of a more broad sense. You might think mission impossible. You know, dun, 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 dun. Jesus, the task given to him, should he choose to accept it? It's coming to the world to save sinners from their sin. Okay? Jesus comes to save sinners from their sin. Mission is a really precise term used in theology to speak about the Father sending the Son in the world in a new way as man. Jesus is going to point to this because what we'll see from his mission is that he can be nobody else but God the Son. So we begin with his mission, verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. Again. Yes, this is the second time the Jews have picked up rocks, not to show them their rock collection, but rather as instruments of death. This would be like a firing squad picking up their rifles for a second time to kill Jesus. It gives you a picture of the climate, the tension of their response and rejection of him, the first time was just in the last two months. At the end of John chapter 8, you'll recall Jesus, and not so many words, confessed to be the Messiah. The promise he'd come from Abraham to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. He said that Abraham looked forward to my day and rejoiced. They scoff at the idea, they respond, verse 57, again of chapter 8, the Jews replied, you aren't yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, before he was born, before he came into existence, I am. Not I was, but I am. Jesus applies the personal name of Israel's God. Jesus suggesting that he is the timeless, changeless, independent, self-sufficient uncaused creator and covenant-keeping God of Israel. Before Abraham was, I am, verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Here we are again in chapter 10. They ask, Jesus, you recall, said, I already told you, but you weren't listening. And then he answers it in a more remarkable way. Verse 30, he says, the Father and I are one. He's answering the Messiah question by saying he has the ability to save his sheep. He calls them and they listen. He calls them and they come. He protects them and holds them with the very power of God. To be in the Son's hand is to be in the Father's hand. Why? Because the Father and I are one. They hear Jesus clearly claiming to be God. The Jews picked up rocks to stone him. This is not the first time or even the second time that Jesus has claimed to be God in a way that they hear clearly. Again, we saw it in chapter 8. We see the first time in John chapter 5. Jesus heals the paralytic man. They accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. Jesus takes it to the next level. Verse 17, my father is still working and I am working also. John tells us what they're thinking. Verse 18, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So at least three times now Jesus has done this in the presence of the Jewish leaders. On some level, 
we can understand their consternation. Israel's great confession, hear, O Israel, the Lord, meaning numerically there is one God. There are not multiple gods, there is one God. And meeting, maybe harder for us to grasp, but metaphysically God is one, meaning God is not made up of a bunch of parts or properties or different gods. The Godhead is not like a pantheon. God is not like a bunch of Power Rangers coming together to form Megazord. It's for the 90s kids. The great Shema, the Lord our God is one. Jesus, the Father and I are one. The Jews are doing, they're, they're, they're doing quick math. How do one and one not make two? Now, Jesus is not expecting them to get all the particulars here. He's just expecting them to be teachable to God's revelation as it's unfolding before them. Okay, we won't press into it. would encourage you to listen to my sermons back in John chapter 5, but we confess one God eternally existing as and in three persons. As a friend of mine puts it, we count persons, not natures. Three persons, one nature. Again, the Jews don't know this. Jesus is not expecting them to know this. He's just expecting them to be teachable. But they have a few kind of principles. God is not a man. God cannot become a man. What Jesus is doing is applying pressure on them that they might rethink how they understand God. Revelation is unfolding in their midst. In a very tongue-in-cheek kind of way, he says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? Like, which one of my good works warrants your wrath? Which one of my father's works are you going to stone me for? Which one of the divine works is worth being killed over? Now, they'll deny it's because of his works, verse 33. But the irony is, the irony, what we know, is that their wrath was stoked for Jesus at all of his miracles. It was John 5 when he healed the paralytic on the Sabbath that they first resolved to kill him. It's when he healed the blind guy and their discourse over that, that they collected rocks. In the next chapter, Jesus will bring Lazarus back from the dead, and it's the final straw. Like, can you believe he raised that guy from the dead? Not on my watch. They set a plane in motion not only to kill Lazarus, not only to kill Jesus, but Lazarus. Right? This time, make sure he's extra dead. It's loaded with irony. Jesus is asking for which one of these works, these works of my Father, these divine works that we are doing, for which one of these are you stoning me? They respond, verse 33, we aren't stoning you for good work, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself. We saw it in John chapter 5, it's blasphemy. You can think of blasphemy as profaning God. Failing to give him something that's due or trying to keep something from him that's his. It's to treat what's holy as common or worse as perverse. Imagine going to a funeral for a respected U.S. servant of state. We got to see Bush lying in state on the Capitol. Now imagine going to a funeral, you know, for a servant of state, one of the good ones, someone who served with integrity, who represented their people well. We implemented laws that were just and righteous. You go there, there's a sense of kind of reverence and awe. People are paying their respects. You take a big old bag of chips, you know, 
Cheetos. They're eulogizing him. Can of Coke. Go, 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 go. Burp. Right? Like that kind of behavior might be appropriate in the privacy of your home, but there's a lack of respect that you're showing for someone to whom it's due. To blaspheme God is to show disregard for his name. It's to approach God on your own terms, in your own way, as though God is down. It is to curse that which should be blessed. It is to disrespect that which should be revered. It is to lessen that which cannot be higher. It's to approach God in a kind of casual way, an indifferent way, a haphazard way, in a bombastic way. It's to do what they think Jesus is doing, turning God into a creature. Under the Old Covenant law, it warrants capital punishment by means of stoning. Leviticus 24, verses 15 and 16. Now what the Jews are seeing, because they're not seeing according to faith, they're just seeing this man, Jesus of Nazareth, calling himself God. Like a man who looks like us. Born a baby, once a hormonal teenager, dependent on air, food eating, excess excreting, standing in one place, shivering in the cold. Knowledge, learning, constantly changing man is claiming to be God. All they hear is blasphemy. He's making the creator a creature. He's making himself the creature, the creator. To them, it's a scandal. To suggest that God was transformed in the incarnation, that God became simply a creature, would be blasphemy. We need to grasp this. The divine is not defiled by becoming the son of man taking on human nature. The Chalcedonian Creed aptly summarizes Scripture's own teaching on the person of Christ. We confess one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in godhood and perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, coessential with the Father. That means what it means to be God is true of the Son, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. Begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. Now, it's technical speech, but what it's saying is that God the Son is one person with two natures in such a way that they don't confuse or change each other. You're not taking like half God, half man to make a third thing. God is not being changed. Now Jesus, again, is not asking them to get all the particulars here. What he wants from them is for teachability. He wants them to be teachable as God's revelation is unfolding before them. Everything figured out, it's time to listen. The problem is, of course, they think they know better than God, about God, about creation. Brothers and sisters, this is what God does to us every time we open our Bibles and gather on the Lord's Day. The Lord appears to us to teach us, and he expects us to hear, to believe, and to obey, because we do not have it all figured out, and he often applies pressure on us. He expects us to conform to him and not the pattern of the world. Again, his expectation is not for them to immediately figure it out. He's expecting them to be teachable. So here's what's going on. They see a man confessing to be God, and they're right about that. 
but they're wrong on two counts. They don't understand how God is revealing himself to be triune and how God the Son became man. And so they accuse him, verse 33, of blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. The great irony, of course, is that man is not making himself to be God, but rather God has made himself to be man for us and for our salvation. They think some Jew from a small village is simply confessing to be, pretending to be, claiming to be, leading everyone else to believe that he, a man, became God, when in fact God the Son became a man for us. They don't understand It's not because what Jesus is putting before them is so uh, intellectually difficult. It's not like Jesus is putting a riddle before them that's keeping them from the kingdom of heaven. Like, what's eight pounds? You got to figure it out if you want to get to heaven. What's 510 walks on water and has two natures? No, it's, uh, Vincent got it. There you go. Congratulations. No, their problem is moral and spiritual. It's now that they've become, they've come face to face with God in the flesh, they don't like him. It wouldn't matter if they met him here or in heaven. They're thinking, and if that's God, someone hand me a rock. They're acting as though it's because they're zealous for God's glory. That's not the case. They're not like Phineas or Deborah of old. Jesus pointed out in John chapter 5, they're actually glory mongers. They don't believe in Jesus because he's getting in the way of them stealing glory from God. But Jesus will deal with them, even on their terms a little, to try to lead them to faith. Here's our charge. You make yourself to be God. It's blasphemy. This is not the case. So what Jesus does is he turns to Israel's scriptures, and more specifically to his own mission as the one the Father set apart and sent into the world to justify his claim that he's the son of God. Verse 34, you'll see there in the text, Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your law? I said you were gods. If he called those to whom the word of God came gods, and the scripture can father set apart and sent into the world because I said I am the son of God. Now that's easy enough to grasp. We'll go to verse 37. I'm just kidding. Grant Buckley told me this weekend, he said, I don't know what that means, but I know what it doesn't mean. (laughs) Well, we'll start in the middle of verse 35. Notice that Jesus appeals to Scripture. He says, and the Scripture cannot be broken. He starts with something they have in common. They believe, they confess at least, that Scripture cannot be broken, meaning positively, Scripture is inspired by God. We believe that it's God's Word. We believe that it's holy. That's why we call it Holy Scripture. Brothers and sisters, this is not like any other book we own or read or hear or study. Written by men, yes, but most fundamentally written by God. God doesn't write with pen or computer. God's not inspired by what he sees. He doesn't get writer's block. He doesn't make blunders or inaccuracies. Scripture is inspired by God, which makes it holy. Stated negatively, Scripture is without error. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't deal in half-truths. He doesn't have to update his morals to keep up with the times. He's not wrong about history. God's word properly understood is without error. 
So Jesus is turning to Israel's scripture. He's saying, we believe the Bible, right? Okay. Consider what's said in Psalm this at the same time. Consider what is in Psalm 82. Now we read this in our scripture reading. There, Psalm 82, verse 1, we see God standing in the divine assembly. That's God, capital G, God, pronouncing judgment among the lowercase g gods for their failure to administer justice, for their failure to judge justly, for their failure to deal with one another in righteousness. God again calls them gods in verse 6, lowercase g gods, and calls them sons of the Most High. They will die, of course, though, like people, like humans for their failure. And at the end, the psalmist is calling on God, the true judge of the earth, to rise up and to bring judgment. So a couple questions. Who is the psalmist under divine inspiration calling lowercase g gods? There are a few few theories. I think the two most likely options both refer to people. This is either a reference to Israel's judges and their kings, their human judges and kings who function like God insofar as they are tasked with ruling and rendering these judgments or verdicts. Think about it. To judge is a divine prerogative. The second that God creates, we are related to him as accountable. He is our judge. God as God is the judge. God is allowing people, his image bearers in the roles of kings and judges to function like God on earth in his place. Okay, it's a divine function, divine prerogative to judge. That's option one. Option two, and this would have been the more common interpretation at the time. This is what would have been held by the rabbis. This is what all of Jesus' hearers would have heard as he's referencing you are God's. Option two is a broader reference to all of Israel and the word of God that came to them, John 10, 35, is God's law being delivered to Israel at Mount Sinai. They are sons of God. We know that Israel is corporately called the son of God. We see this in Exodus chapter four. Their kings are called sons of God. We see this in 2 Samuel 7. God then is judging them for failing to keep their covenant obligations. Both are plausible. It doesn't really matter for our purposes which one's right. As uncomfortable as it may make us, Scripture is sanctioning the calling of people, in some cases, lowercase g-gods. Okay? So that's question one. Question two, how is Scripture calling them lowercase g-gods? This is going to help us understand. And in fact, I think this comes to us all rather intuitively. Meaning you read it and you understand. We make a distinction between literal predication and metaphorical predication. Okay, to predicate literally, that means you're saying something about an object, and it's true in a literal sense. So when we say that God is love, we mean literally, God is love. Now, we still have to purify our thinking about it. When you think that God is love, you think about your mom making you soup when you're sick. Okay, God's love is infinitely greater than our love. Without any of the imperfections that we possess as creatures, more than that, God is not just loving. God is love. It's identical to who he is. There's an analogy, there's dissimilarity, but it's true literally. God is love. Make sense? Then sometimes we predicate metaphorically. We use an image to convey something that's true. Psalm 19, may the words of, O Lord, my rock, my rock and my redeemer. 
I pray this isn't news to anyone here, not the members. At least God is not literally a big rock in the sky. God is not the aggregate of materials. He was not formed. Okay, if when you think of God, you literally think of a big rock, you have committed idolatry. What the psalmist is conveying by means of metaphor is that God is unshakable. God is unchanging. He is our solid foundation. He's powerful. He is our salvation. This is what the psalmist gets at through metaphor. We're not to literally believe that God is a rock. Rather, he possesses some of the qualities that rocks possess in a more perfect and infinite kind of way. Okay, Psalm 82. When Psalm 82 calls God's people, or even more specifically kings and judges, lowercase g, God's it's doing so metaphorically, not literally. So people is being made in the image of God, reflecting him. The redeemed as being his sons and daughters, some by virtue of their office as kings or judges, kind of mimicking divine characteristics and functions. They're acting like lowercase g gods. This tiny, imperfect, derivative, sharing, shadowy reflection of what God possesses an infinite degree as God. Image gods. Psalm 82 is not saying that you are God. It's a metaphor. We are no more literally God than God is literally a rock or a lion or a tower or a vine. What Psalm 82 does for us, a couple of things in particular, it exalts us. Think about it. You guys are made in the image of God. You are called sons and daughters of God. Again, if this applies more specifically to the redeemed, we're his children. We are being conformed into the image of his son, metaphorically called lowercase g gods. The image of God grants us incredible dignity regardless of our class or gender or ethnicity or health or age. We should treat one another as such. Psalm 82 exalts humanity. It also humbles us. Brothers and sisters, we are not God. In fact, Psalm 82 is about God rendering judgment on the little lowercase g, God's failure to image him. The psalmist calls on God, the true God, to bring judgment on those who have failed on earth, God, by uttering one word, could bring us into oblivion. By one word, he could give the sinner what they deserve. We are reminded in Psalm 82 that God alone is the creator. He alone preserves us. He alone grants. God does not share the category of deity with anyone or anything. Strictly speaking, God does not even fit into a category. There's not a category of gods that we put God and Allah and Shiva in. There is God, the independent, uncaused, who doesn't need us, who is not added to in the slightest by making us. There is an infinite gap, and then there is us, the cause, time-bound, space-constrained, weak, finite, dependent creatures. You see, the image of God, it exalts us among creation, and it humbles us by keeping us here. It reminds us that our existence, our salvation, everything, it is a gift from God who's being abundantly generous to us. Okay, but here's the point that Jesus is making. He's doing two things. He's justifying calling himself the son of God because of his mission. We'll see that in a second. But what he's saying is if scripture, which is unbroken, 
is scripture which is God-breathed, inerrant, and holy. Calls people like you, lowercase g gods, how much more fitting is it to call the Son of God, God? If scripture which cannot be broken deems it fitting to call those made in the image of God, the lowercase g gods, how much more fitting to call the image of God, God? If it's fitting to call Israel, how much more fitting to call the one who will rip the dead from the graves and fix their state with a single word, God. If it's fitting to call temporary kings over tiny nations, lower, tiny nations, lowercase g, gods, how much more fitting to call the one who has all authority on heaven and earth, God. If it's fitting, Jesus is saying to call the ones to whom the word of God came, Lowercase g gods. How much more fitting to call the word of God, God. Jesus' point to them is if you're willing to call the sons of men, the judges of Israel, the kings of nations, those who receive the law, lowercase g gods, should you not call the one they imitate God. The irony, of course, is that to call Jesus a blasphemer for identifying himself as God is to commit blasphemy yourself because you're saying that God is not God. It's to rob him of his honor. Jesus demands that we recognize him as Israel's God and Messiah. The main point, especially that he's making, the way that he's showing this is those to whom the word of God came were called gods. But what about he's doing this to point to his mission? Verse 36 do you say you're blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said, I am the Son of God? Said differently, if the word of God coming to them makes them lowercase g gods, what does it make the word who set apart and sent into the world? Here's the irony again. You'll recall that it's Hanukkah, which is a festival of renewal or dedication or a festival of sanctification. Jesus is saying literally of himself, he's the one that the Father sanctified to send into the world. So Israel is waiting for their Messiah to come to deliver them from their enemies, to restore David's throne, to renew the temple. They're waiting for it. And yet here is the one that the Father has set apart to send into the world for this mission, and they miss him. Jesus is the one set apart, sent into the world. What does that make him? Why did the Father send him? John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Again, looking at his mission, who could save the world but God? The one who created the world had to be the one to come to die for it. Jesus is pointing to his mission as being set apart by God in eternity past to come into creation in the fullness of time because it demonstrates that he is God the Son. He can't be anyone else. The task could not be delegated. Christ is the word that predates the world. He has to be God because he created the world. He has to be God because he was set apart by the Father before time began. But for our salvation, he had to become a man. Who else but the God-man could fulfill the law? Who else but the God-man could live a sinless life? 
Who else but the God-man could bear the infinite wrath of God upon the cross? Who else but the God-man could roll back the curse? Who else but God the Son could give us the gift of adoption? Who but the one who breathes the Spirit forth in eternity could give us the gift of God's presence? It had to be God become man. That kind of person is not just born in Galilee. He is eternally begotten of the Father and becomes man in the fullness of time for us and for our salvation. The debt that we people owed that we could not pay, God himself came to pay. The glory that he himself is owed as the God-man, he gives to us. This is the exchange we find in the gospel. To justify that he's God the Son, more specifically because of his mission as being set apart and sent into the world, it couldn't be anyone else. So Jesus justifies his claim of unity with the Father by looking at his mission. He then does so by pointing to his miracles. We consider his miracles or his works. Jesus goes on in verse 37. He says, if I'm not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. If you're inclined to think that Jesus is just out to get his opponents, like he's, just, he's working for the cosmic gotcha. Verse 37 and 38 probably sound like a shock. Jesus is saying, listen, if I'm not actually doing these works, don't believe me. If I'm not actually doing them from the Father, with the Father, by his power and according to his will, don't believe me. If I'm a liar or a charlatan, of course, reject me. Jesus takes it a step further. He's trying to remove every possible obstacle. He says, just forget about me for a second. You know, the whole point of the gospel. Just forget about me for a second, seriously. And just consider the works. Think about these works. How else would they be possible? What else would they communicate? You see, we know what something is by what it does. Action reveals nature. Okay, a mammal, topping out at speeds of 80 miles an hour, you would know it's a, oh, I was going to say hippo. No, yeah, <laughs> cheetah, coming strong from the catling wing. If I said this instrument holds ink and is used for writing or drawing, you would know it's a, it's a pen. Action reveals nature. Someone got it wrong. I'm starting back over. Turn with me. No. Action reveals nature. Jesus is telling them, just think about my actions, my works, my miracles for a minute. What does it reveal about who I am? What does it reveal about my natures? Who else, by the power of their word, could mimic creation out of nothing by turning water into wine? Who else, without even having to visit the home, could stop death kilometers away? Who else, by a single command, could cause a man to walk after a lifetime of paralysis? Who else could walk on stormy waters and calm the seas? Who could take a few loaves of bread and fish and feed thousands upon thousands? Who else could heal a man born blind? No doubt Jesus will want them to continue thinking about his future signs. Who else could who else could pay for the penalty of sin? 
Who else could himself walk out of the tomb? Who else could ascend to the throne in heaven? Who else could pour out the Spirit on Pentecost? Jesus is telling them to consider what the signs mean in the context of Israel's history. The Messiah has come. He's come to roll back the curse, to heal sickness, to stop death, to give spiritual life, to reveal God to the blind, to forgive sins, to raise the dead. Again, what the blind man got in John chapter 9, these men cannot comprehend. He told them these kind of works cannot be done apart from God. And God doesn't use liars. He doesn't use blasphemers to do this kind of stuff. He understood these have to be the works of God. These have to be the works of God. What Jesus has told us since John chapter 5 is that he only does what the Father does and everything the Father does, he does. How is it possible he is the same God? They share power, will, essence. Again, the blind guy doesn't get all that. He just gets... If this water-changing, temple-cleansing, sickness-healing, death-stopping, bread-multiplying, water-walking, eye-opening, dead-raising, sin-bearing, death-defeating man says he's God, it's good for me. I once was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. Once guilty, but free. Once dead, but now I live. The blind man knows salvation comes from the Lord, and I've been saved. Look at the works. Reason from the works. If you do that, he says, in this way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus is saying, if you get the signs, you should get the sons because they speak so close in me and I am in the Father. Jesus, stretching the limits of human speaking and thinking, uses a numerical term in verse 30, the Father and I are one. Uses a spatial term in verse 38, the Father is in me, I am in the Father. No prophet in Israel's history would have dared to speak this way because it would have been blasphemy. When Jesus speaks this way, it's revelation. He's getting at the unity and intimacy that he possesses with the Father as his Son, as one and the same God. Jesus is not simply a good man or a teacher. He's not simply a prophet or a priest. He's not simply David's son, though he is. He's David's greater son because he's David's Lord. All of Jesus' miracles and sermons point to that fact, and there can be no other explanation. Jesus is God become man. Verses 30 and 38 reveal the same truth from the mouth of Jesus, that he is God. They both provoke the same response from the Jews. Verse 39, then they were trying again to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. As we'll soon hear in the gospel, he lays it down himself. I love the imagery that John uses here in verse 39. They weren't able to seize him. He escaped their grasp. You'll recall the promises that Jesus just told us that we cannot be grasped or seized from him if he's holding us. And now here he is, surrounded by a mob of foaming, stone-holding, hateful men, cornered, and yet they can't grasp him. Why? Because he's not allowing it or willing it to happen. It's just a sweet reminder that we are protected by his power, as protected as he is. Jesus, as we see, is calling us to believe in him from his mission. He calls us to believe in him from his works. And he calls us to believe, this is how most of us believe, through his messengers. His messengers testify that he is the God-man. John goes on writing, he says, verse 40, so he, 
departed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. We're nearing the eve of the Passion of Christ. In chapter 11, Jesus will heal Lazarus. At the end of the chapter, the leaders will formalize a plan to kill him. In chapter 12, we get the triumphal entry. Here at the end, directed by Israel's leaders in Jerusalem, Jesus retreats to where it all began for us in the Gospel of John, across the Jordan where he was baptized by John. John is no longer there. Of course, he has been beheaded, Matthew 14, for publicly condemning Herod's incestuous sin. Jesus returns there, though, not to be alone. He's not retreating in defeat. He's going to reap the fruit of John's public ministry. Verse 41, many came to him and said, John never did a sign. But everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. John was the last of the great Old Testament prophets, but he never performed any signs. Signs typically accompanied the prophets. They demonstrated God's power on them. It demonstrated the veracity of their message. But John, the gospel writer, tells us what these people are thinking. John never performed any signs. He just preached. Here they gather to be with Jesus and they'll come to believe. Now, we use our imagination. Think that you're a part of this crowd gathering, verse 41. You were there and you've heard John preach before. You were there when the Jewish leaders came to him. They sent an entourage to question him to find out if he's the Messiah. You heard John say, no, that he's not. But what he's doing is in fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. He's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. You were there when John preached, telling Maybe you were there when John preached the sermon on repentance because the kingdom of God was near. You were there as he was telling the people to prepare their hearts. The day of visitation was drawing. You heard the invitation. You heard the message, the Messiah is coming. She didn't believe yet. You were there when John said that the Messiah is now here. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal straps. You were there maybe even when John pointed out Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as a Jew... You know what this means. If it's true, Jesus has been sent into the world to bear its sin and guilt. If it's true, you don't know if it is, he will die to bring peace between mankind and God. You were there when John said he saw the Spirit of God descend and rest on Jesus. Again, as a Jew, you know what that means. If it's true, Jesus is the Spirit-anointed Messiah. He's come to bring the gift of God's presence to his people. He's come to cleanse us by his own spirit. Maybe you were there when some of John's followers, maybe even some of your friends, they left and they started following Jesus, but you don't yet believe. All the while you've been thinking is what John has been saying true. And then here comes Jesus preaching the same message, that by believing in me, you can move from death to life. That by believing in me, you can receive the forgiveness of sins. That by believing in me, you can have eternal life. That by believing in me, you'll participate in the resurrection from the dead. More than that, you've come to learn that he has mastery over the sea. You might even think that's the gates of Hades. You come to see and hear that he has authority over sickness. He has the ability to stop death. He can give life. He has the power to change water and multiply food. And as a Jew, you know these aren't empty signs. You grew up in the home with your father and mother teaching you from scripture. You grew up going to Sunday school with teachers like Miss Mary. You know what this means. 
drawing from Scripture and Israel's history and what you heard from John, you're seeing that Jesus is Abraham's seed. He's Moses' prophet. He's David's son. He's heaven's bread. He's the world's light. He's God's son. And yes, he's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. You come to believe that he is God become man, become lamb to die in the place of me. And you believe. Think about it. Jesus in the city, the capital Jerusalem, with those who are highly skilled and trained and elite, Jesus is pleading for them to do what they will not and what these country folks have done. They've considered the signs of Jesus. They've considered the mission, the message, and they believe. Verses 41 and 42 should be such an encouragement to us brothers and sisters. Think about it. How many of you have ever healed the blind? How many of you can turn water into wine or multiply bread? If you can, let's talk. I have a business proposition. How many of you can walk on water or calm the storm or stop death? How many signs did John perform? Zero. How many people came to believe through his ministry? Verse 42, many. Why? Because he preached the gospel. Jesus today continues to reap a harvest where his messengers have preached about his mission and his miracles. John the Baptist reminds us that God uses ordinary people who are faithful to his mission to do something extraordinary. Brothers and sisters, John was not relevant. He was not cool by his time standards. He wasn't trendy. He wasn't trained even. He didn't do anything miraculous. He was just a faithful preacher of God's word. He called sin, sin. He called sinners to repentance. He called Jesus the Lamb of It was his faithfulness that led to fruitfulness. Brothers and sisters, are you content to simply preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost? Or do you think, think about it, is there someone you've been wanting to share the gospel with, but you haven't because you're waiting for something else to fall into place? When we think we need to add to the power of the gospel, we suggest that God himself is lacking in power. God used John's simple preaching, his consistent and holy living. John didn't even get to see all the fruit of his ministry. Do you think that bugged John? No, he was happy to play a supporting role. We heard in John chapter 3, he who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. One of the greatest encouragements of verses 41 and 42 is not only that God uses our faithful preaching as weak as it is, not only that God uses our ordinary simple efforts as we share the gospel with our coworkers, as we read the Bibles to our children, but that God can even use them long after we're gone. We often quit in the ministry because we don't see what we want to see in our time. Faithful ministry is done in faith. Charles Bridges wrote in On the Christian Ministry, ministerial success must be viewed as extending beyond present appearances. The seed may and then spring up. Our plain and cheering duty is to go forward, to scatter the seed, to believe and wait. Brothers and sisters, preach the gospel with your coworkers, praying 
that they will come to believe even after you have found other employment. Preach the gospel to your siblings and parents knowing that God can do for them what you cannot. Parents, preach the gospel to your kids knowing you may be long in the grave before the seeds you planted in their little hearts sprout forth. Preach and pray that it will happen. Brothers and sisters, as long as you have breath in your lungs, you can preach and pray. As long as they have breath in their lungs, they can repent and believe. As long as the Spirit moves and the Son intercedes and God calls His children home, there is hope. We may not be able to produce miraculous signs like Jesus, but we can be faithful like John. In a sense, we have a far more simple sign. It's holy living. It's loving our neighbors. It's being faithful to the ministry, even in the midst of persecution. You might not be able to heal your sick friend, but you can drive them to treatment. And you can tell them about Jesus. The dead, but you can weep with them. And you can tell them about Jesus. You might not be able to multiply food, but you can feed your hungry neighbor and you can tell them about Jesus. Our signs, in a sense, are far more simple, holy, living, loving, sacrifice, and faith. We can preach the only message that can deal with the world's biggest problems, which is sin. We preach the only message that gives the world what it so desperately wants, which is life. We preach the only message that gives the soul what it longs for, which is rest. It's in the preaching of the gospel that Jesus' mission is most clearly made visible. That God became a man to die for sinners. It's in the preaching of the word that Christ's most significant signs are put forth, his cross and resurrection. And it's as we preach consistently with our lives and in the face of persecution that we give the world something about sign. The people knew that John believed this to the grave. Our lives then testify that Jesus is who he says he is. He's the God-man, and he's worthy of our lives. Brothers and sisters, God intends for your life and message to proclaim to the world that Jesus is Israel's God and Messiah. What an honor with John we can say that our joy is complete. Who is Jesus? He is Israel's God. He is our Savior. He's come into the world to save sinners like us. We know it because someone, a messenger, told us it from God's word. We saw his mission. We saw his miracles. By for faithfulness, we came to believe that Jesus is the son who died for sinners. Let's preach it like he is who we believe he is. Pray with me.